welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Dear Father in heaven, we pray that as we turn to our Bible study this morning that our hearts indeed will be melted so that you can place your seal of love upon our lives and prepare us for the great tests that lie ahead. We ask this in the Savior's name. Amen. Probably almost all Christian churches now are coming alive to the truth that Jesus must be coming soon. And they see so many things happening in the world that fear is coming upon almost everyone, Christian as well as non-Christian. And we're thankful that there are many Christian churches who see that Jesus must come back soon. And so, if Jesus is coming back soon, doesn't it make good common sense to prepare for that event? Absolutely. Uh, After all, people on this coast are constantly told that eventually, sooner or later, we're going to be facing the big one, and we ought to be prepared for it, shouldn't we, with certain inventory on hand. So, can't we apply good sense to preparing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? There are many pastors and theologians who tell us, well, there's no special preparation that you have to have for the second coming of Jesus. Just live a good life and do the best that you can, and you'll be ready either to die or to meet the Lord Jesus and be translated when he comes. But even a child can see that there is something that is special involved in the second coming of Jesus. There is a final examination that is coming. And the Bible describes it as a great test in Revelation chapter 13. It's called the mark of the beast. And that in that one final issue, according to Jesus' parable, the sheep will be divided from the goats forever. The mark of the beast uh, will involve great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. So never in history have God's people met such a test. Jesus spoke of that test, that it would involve personal relationships that we have. He said, you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake, and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? In other words, many who now profess to keep the commandments of God And the faith of Jesus will turn traitor, and they will accept the mark of the beast. And Paul soberly tells us even more when he warns us, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. You know, just like Peter, who thought he would stand, he was so sure that he would never fall, but a girl who was barely out of her teens, overthrew him. And he denied his Lord with cursing and swearing. 
But the good news is that there is an alternative to the mark of the beast. Amen? And that is the seal of God. That's what we want to prepare us for that mark of the beast, final examination. The seal of God in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, refer to that. And that involves a special work of purification of the heart. Just like John wrote there in 1 John chapter 2, when Christ shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. He is talking about the seal of God in preparation for the coming of the Lord. So here we are. We're living in a worldwide day of atonement with Jesus as our pastor, and it is precisely his work to reconcile our alienated hearts to God. So will you please not stop him from doing that? Will you please don't resist him from doing that? Will you cooperate with him? Will you believe his good news of love radiating from the cross? There is this very sober warning in the Bible, and it just seems like it's easy for us to forget it there in Revelation 14, verses 9 through 12, in warning us about this mark of the beast test issue. It says, if any man, if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his right hand or in his forehead, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And then Revelation 15 goes on to speak of those who have met this great challenge and have accepted the third angel's message and uh, have gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. And they're standing on the sea of glass and they're singing a song of the Lamb forever and ever. In fact, the entire book of Revelation is concerned about the issue of the mark of the beast. And Revelation 7 describes that small group who sing the song of Moses and the Lamb as those who have received the seal of God. It says there in Revelation 7, 3, we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And then it describes them in verse 14 as having washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Well, in the Bible, a seal is interchangeable with a mark. And so the Bible, the book of Revelation, is telling us that in the last days, just prior to Jesus' return in the clouds of heaven, that the entire population of the earth is going to be divided into two groups. Those who receive the seal of God and those who accept the mark of the beast. That's pretty serious, isn't it? And we need to be clear on what the two are. And that would require some very careful study. Revelation 13, 8 says that all that dwell upon the earth will worship the beast with the sole exception of those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And an inspired one has written, the mark of the beast is to be presented in some shape to every institution and every individual. It's another crisis, which in principle is the same that the people faced when Jesus was here on this earth 
When Jesus was here on this earth, it divided people into two groups. They were divided into two groups. Those who believed he was the true Messiah, as he, as he claimed he was, and those who rejected him. And so he asked them, point blank, what think ye of Christ? In Matthew 22, 14, 42, and they had to decide. They had to decide whether he was the Messiah or not. And so today, you and I have to decide between the mark of the beast and the seal of God. But the issue is far, far deeper than a superficial, skin-deep, outward sign. The third angel's message in verity is the true message of righteousness by faith. It will lead to receiving the seal of God. And a false legalistic view will lead to the mark of the beast. So yes, it is a very serious study. We need to look at it carefully. Came across a Time Magazine article entitled, A a Half-Millennium Rift being healed between Lutherans and Roman Catholics. In other words, either the, Roman, either the Reformation is dead or the Roman Catholic Church is now converted to the true gospel. What's at issue here is the very gospel itself, how Christ saves us. And one Catholic commentator says that the dispute between Catholics and Protestants on this issue is the root cause of a division that has shaped all of world history, and that's true. It called forth the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans and to the Galatians nearly 2,000 years ago, and it has caused serious conflict in God's church of the last days, and it still does. What difference does it mean to me in my life? You ask millions of sincere people who simply want to follow Jesus and believe in him, are we to believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone? Or is it by faith plus our own diligent efforts? And maybe the difference between that sounds trivial, but think again. Because ultimately, when the smoke is cleared away, it's going to be in the difference between accepting the seal of God and, or accepting the mark of the beast. When you look at the encyclopedic chapter on righteousness by faith, which is in Romans chapter 5, it starts off in verse 1 saying, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. When a heart is no longer in rebellion with God, when it understands its sins are forgiven, it includes a reconciliation of a heart that's been in rebellion. That individual understands righteousness by faith. There's peace with God. means we're reconciled to God because we have received the atonement. We've seen the deeper meaning of the cross. Its love has melted our hearts. You see, it's more than a legal declaration or an entry into the books of heaven. It's an actual change of human hearts. Paul said that the carnal mind that we come into this world with is enmity against God. 
Not only is it uh, angry with God, but it also cannot obey the law of God, consequently. But now, justification by faith abolishes the enmity. Seeing that God has already given us the pardon and the forgiveness, that love melts our hearts, and it reconciles us to God. That's justification by faith. And you can't be reconciled to God unless at the same time you're reconciled to God's holy law, the Ten Commandments. Paul says, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, he says, yea, we establish the law in Romans 3, verse 31. Therefore, if we are reconciled to God, we shall gladly obey ten of his commandments, including the fourth commandment. Yes, we shall obey the seventh commandment, too. You know what that one's about? Justification by faith heals wounded, alienated hearts in marriage. Yes. The, the, the miracle of marital fidelity takes place in what were our carnal hearts. So, if the Lutherans and the Catholics have discovered Bible justification by faith, that means that they will begin observing the seventh-day Sabbath, just like Jesus did, as his custom was, to worship on the seventh day according to the commandment, uh, Luke 4.16. Justification by faith brings the gift of heavenly love that is shed abroad in the heart by the Holy Spirit, Paul talks about in Romans 5, 5, and that means a deliverance from all kinds of fear because God's perfect agape casts out fear. Fear ceases to be a motive in following Christ, for the love of Christ constraineth us, Paul wrote, to live not for self, but to live for him who died for us. And this change of character is produced by a heart appreciation of the sacrifice of Christ who died for sinners, even his enemies. And the wrath that Jesus endured on the cross had to be that of the second death, which was that self-condemnation that he experienced as being the sin bearer. And such love produces the most miraculous change in human hearts that has ever been seen in world history. For as Luther wisely said, a full understanding of justification by faith must grow as the world becomes progressively more wicked just before the end. More abounding sin is going to require a clearer revelation of grace that much more abounds. And what will be the end result? It will be a people who are prepared to be translated at his second coming. This is important for us to know. If you're going to get ready for Jesus' coming, we, know how to, we need to know how to prepare for it. A deeper appreciation of the cross and understanding of justification by faith. So do Lutherans and Catholics see it? The Apostle Paul did not muddy the waters of Christianity he powerfully clarified the gospel. He taught that justification by faith is an experience of total heart reconciliation with God. And if your heart 
is reconciled to God, it will at the same time be reconciled to God's law. And if your heart is truly reconciled to God's holy law, you will obey that law gladly, willingly. In other words, it'll be life-changing. And when this truth is understood clear as sunlight, a people will be prepared for Christ's coming. So there's something here that neither the Lutherans or the Catholics seem yet to have grasped. But the good news is that you can understand it. If your soul is really hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Now, the Reformers apparently never had an inkling of the real meaning of the Sabbath, the Seventh-day Sabbath. Quite apart from the question of what day to observe, they failed to get far enough to discern the doctrine of the Sabbath rest itself as concomitant of genuine righteousness by faith. And so it is that the popular Protestant or Catholic concepts of justification by faith just seem to fall short. The Sabbath grows out of the cleansing of the sanctuary, and the cleansing of the sanctuary is implicit in the, in the Sabbath itself. And in this sense, it can be said that the cross and the Sabbath constitute the seal of God. The seal of God, the cross of Jesus, the sanctuary truth, the intersection, they all intersect. They all intersect. The cross is Jesus' appeal to you of how much he loves you. It melts your heart. It changes it so that you become an obedient child of God, seeing his love in the Ten Commandments. That's the cleansing of the sanctuary truth. And it's that love which God alone can write upon your heart and on your mind that is the seal of God. There is an intersection of the seal of God and the cross and the sanctuary truth. And when God's love is really in our hearts, we'll see that the Sabbath is a test of whether we truly love him or not. When he asks us to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. You can notice this intersection. Now, one inspired writer has put it this way. What is the seal of the living God, which is placed in the foreheads of his people? It is a mark which angels but not human eyes can read, for the destroying angel must see the mark of redemption. The intelligent mind has seen the sign of the cross of Calvary in the Lord's adopted sons and daughters. The sin of the transgression of the law of God is taken away, and they have on the wedding garment and are obedient and faithful to all God's commandments. The intersection of the seal of God the, the Sabbath truth, the Ten Commandments, and the cross. But Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 12, of these last days, and we're living in it right now, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall do what? So just in these days, when love seems to be waning, the Lord has a message of love for us. Just what we need. That 
that word for love, the love of many is waxing cold, that's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 5 to describe the love of husbands for their wives. So that includes marital love. And genuine marital love involves fidelity. Fidelity. In other words, Jesus predicted that in the last days, marital fidelity would be a rare thing, a rare commodity. It is rare, isn't it, today? The wedding of Kate and William has reminded us of his father and mother's sad debacle, hasn't it? Nowhere has the world seen a more dramatic and sad example of marital infidelity than the marriage of the future King of England, Prince Charles and Princess Diana. It's been described as the greatest funeral of world history. Can you see the prince walking behind the casket of his estranged and divorced wife in a public ceremony broadcast throughout the world? What a painful display of a breakdown of love. It's a horrid example of marital infidelity. And he is the future head of the great Protestant Church of England to make uh, as an example for billions of young people the world around to see that. A terrible example. Queen Victoria would have been horrified for she gave an example of marital fidelity in an age when the Church of England stood for moral fidelity. And probably Queen Elizabeth, too, was confused by it all, perplexed and bewildered by what had happened in her own family. We're told that she just felt horrible. And why has this breakdown of sexual morality and spiritual fidelity, has that, why has that occurred right in the royal family that is the head of the greatest Protestant church in the world? The Bible tells us why. It gives us the secret reason in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 3. It says, Babylon the great is fallen. Babylon being the Bible label for the confused Protestant churches that have ceased to protest against the apostasy of Rome that have denied the authority of the law of God because they have rejected the truth of the seal of that law, which is the seventh-day Sabbath. And as a result, according to verse 3 of Revelation 18, the result is a spiritual adultery toward God which opens the door to this breakdown of marital fidelity. If a church is willing to break the fourth commandment of the Sabbath, then it has no defense against the plague of breaking the seventh commandment, marital fidelity. You've broken one commandment, then the dominoes fall. You've broken them all. But the same passage in Revelation 18 that says Babylon is fallen describes also a worldwide call to repentance that will be effective for all serious-minded 
and honest-hearted people. And I say that that's still good news, that God gives repentance still, and He calls for it. The Bible's crystal clear that there is indeed something that is genuine truth, that God's eternal kingdom will be made up of people who reverence truth. And further, the Bible teaches genuine truth which recommends itself to every reasonable-minded, honest person. And the final issue that the book of Revelation says that will catalyze humanity will be that of truth versus falsehood. The seal of God versus the mark of the beast. And today, every issue that you and I face is related to that one final issue. Are we searching for it? Are we accepting the truth of the gospel? Are we welcoming the truth? The Pope put out an encyclical in which he argues that Sunday is the day to worship. And he employs a very cleverly stated reason and logic, or illogic, to support the idea that Sunday is now the true Sabbath of God. He reasons this way in his encyclical that the seventh day was the Sabbath of the Old Covenant, and Sunday is the Sabbath of the New Covenant. And so the Bible doctrine of the two covenants in his argument, is seen to be integral to the final issue of the mark of the beast versus the seal of God. What has been thought to be a minor intra-church theological squabble over the two covenants actually turns out to be having a tremendous importance for us to understand the two covenants because the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, are not matters of time, or dispensation, but they are timeless. The old covenant was not before the cross and the new covenant after the cross. There are some people who lived in the Old Testament times who were living under the new covenant. And there are people living today who are still in bondage to the old covenant. And where you stand depends on your understanding and your belief of the truth of the gospel, or your willingness to believe untruth, that is, the falsehood of a counterfeit, or what Paul said was another gospel. It's serious business. One is going to lead to the seal of God. The other is going to lead to the mark of the beast. Now, we've long seen in the signs of the times the evidences that indicate that the end is near. The coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Those signs the Bible enumerates are the dark day, the falling of the stars, the increase of knowledge, the perilous times in the last days, etc. But are there signs that through spiritual maturity, the Lord is preparing a people for the final crisis? And that is where the possibility exists that the Holy Spirit in the latter reign may be falling on hearts all around us, but we shall not discern or receive it. Ignorance of the reality. And Scripture warns us not to despise the day of small beginnings. This is a tiny beginning. That the latter rain may come to us initially like the dew 
and not necessarily like the cloudburst or the gully washer, at least in its beginning. And to receive the light of truth in this small beginning, tiny beginning, is like receiving the dew, the beginning of the latter rain. And what we're doing right now is that we are like, you remember Pilgrim and his Pilgrim's Progress there? We're in that enchanted ground where Pilgrim was. And he had a great temptation to go to sleep. And almost over, he had eaten too much turkey. He had a great temptation to go to sleep. And things to us seem great. And fun seems to be so widespread. The good times are rolling on. Church is doing great. But could it be that there are sincere, enlightened souls? Maybe they're seated right next to you in the church who are pinpointed in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, as those who sigh and cry for all of the abominations done in the midst of Jerusalem. Is there anyone in God's house that sighs and cries? Anyone have any discernment to sigh and to cry for the abominations done in God's house? It's only those who are going to receive a mark, which is the seal of God. An angel is commanded to smite all of those who do not sigh and cry. It sounds terrible, but there it is in Ezekiel 9, verse 4. And all of the rest could ultimately end up in the mark of the beast. The passage in Ezekiel, I know it's been often cited to strengthen the holier-than-thou self-righteous ones. That is seldom thought of today, but it does not encourage, this passage does not encourage us to go around judging each other, the ones who are sitting next to us in church, as though you're more holy, more spiritually discerning. You're the only one that's sighing and crying, that you're more serious-minded than that other. Because those who sigh and cry negatively will fall into the trap of self-righteousness. But those who sigh and cry positively realize that by nature they are no better than the person sitting next to them. No better whatsoever. They have no goodness of their own. Their hearts and their eyes are just simply melted by the love of Christ. The realization that they're indebted to Him 100%. Sighing and crying positively reaches out in humble contrition to bless others, concern more for the honor of Christ than because of our own personal fear for security or hope of reward. But the whole question ultimately resolves around this. The most important question that you can ask yourself as a Christian is not regarding your own personal salvation, contrary to all the radio and television preachers. That is not the most important question. That's self-centered, self-serving. The most important question is, will the universe judge God worthy in character to reign forever and ever? Because unless that question is solved, not a one of us will be saved.
and you are aware that God is under heavy criticism regarding his character. He's even accused of starting the whole debacle of sin. So the question resolves itself as to whether God will be judged by the universe or is judgment all one-sided with him arbitrarily judging us? We've often thought it was the latter. God's judgment is pouring out his wrath on us who are sinners. We've often thought it that way. When the Bible says in the first angel's message, the hour of his judgment is come, does that mean that he's out to get us? Or does that mean that he's under heavy criticism and he needs to answer those charges before the universe and before us as to his character, before he can vindicate us as his people? This is a very serious issue. Because a mistaken idea here can influence a person's spiritual experience and either motivate him or her to serve God because of fear. And if we serve God out of craven fear because the deepest motivations of our heart, then I tell you, our Christianity is no better than paganism. And that's the mark of the beast. If we serve God out of craven fear, if that's the motivation for our faith, then it's no better than paganism, and that's the mark of the beast. That faith will collapse when that final test comes. Someone says, well, what difference does it make whether obedience is motivated by fear or by love? So long as you get the job done and obey the law. The difference will be showing up in the final test of the mark of the beast. Because all fear motivation will then, be, will then program us to accept the mark of the beast rather than the seal of God. Because the mark of the beast will be based entirely on fear. I think we must find a better motivation, don't you, for our faith? We must find a better motivation. And that's going to require a clearer understanding of the character of God. He doesn't want us to serve him because of fear, because such fear, if we serve God out of fear, that would be a hollow victory for him, just empty. Billions of people bowing low before him because they're afraid of him, because of his wrath of judgment, that's not going to bring any joy to him. He wants deep heart sincerity. Therefore, Christ, as the Son of God, must humble himself, make himself vulnerable, become open and transparent, surrender himself to the judgment of his creatures. In short, die upon a cross, apparently forsaken of God. That was the vote of humanity. And we are all guilty of the murder of the Son of God. We cast our vote with them in historic time. He must suffer the pangs of hell itself and drain the last drop of fear in order to disarm it and condemn it forever. Jesus faced fear on the cross right in the face and he condemned it and he died with love filling his heart for you and for me. According to Revelation 14, Verses 6 through 14, God must submit himself to the judgment of the universe. For the hour of his judgment is come. It's his judgment. 
And only thus can Satan and sin and fear be finally and totally conquered because fear hath torment. The universe at last will see that God is agape, and agape casteth out fear. You and I can overcome fear. We were born with it, but we can overcome it by permitting the Holy Spirit to shed abroad in our hearts this agape of God. Each one must ask himself, am I going to let the Lord give me his agape love because that's the only source it can come from? Am I going to really be a Christian and let him shed through the Holy Spirit his agape love into my heart? Or am I going to be a pagan and be driven by fear and fail the final test of the mark of the beast. And the Sabbath is the ultimate seal of that seal of God. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming. 